You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heyer, and with me, as always, is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, as always. Today, we're going to be talking about progress, as you call it, the destructive heresy of progress. And you've often written about the the ugliness of modern culture, which you attribute to greed in part and in part a hatred of beauty. But more recently, you also link it with what you refer to as the myth of progress. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, I think we should begin by being clear, as you're suggesting, about what these terms mean, or at least the sense in which I'm using them. People have taken me to task recently because I try to use words like liberal and socialist and progressive in their historic sense. And one of the things about uh, the political and ideological use of language is that words, and by the way, this was noted long ago by Thucydides, in an ideological struggle, words are the first victim, not truth. That is, words, the, the meanings are changed in order to make them uh, more convenient. So I'm using modern to apply to the world since the early Renaissance, say, to the mid 1400s. Many people would say 1492 or 1500, just conventional. It, uh, obviously, uh, the modern era begins a little bit before that. This is the period when the last vestige of the Roman Empire was finally destroyed by the Turks, and a new world was discovered by Columbus. Although, as I was suggesting earlier, off the air, now it's unfashionable to admit that Columbus discovered the New World because, after all, Indians had been living here for hundreds of years. Of course, they didn't discover Europe, so this is really a pretty fair cop. Columbus discovered America. And it's the period uh, when the revolution against Christianity, which had been brewing under the surface, uh, broke out in earnest. And so the modern era, the era, the rejection of of – defined by the rejection of Christianity, is also the era that spawns this malevolent notion of destructive progress. So are you in that camp of people who think that everything post-Duccio and post-Giotto is just trash? No. And in fact, uh, I'm tempted, but, you know, uh, Dr. Johnson says somewhere that no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. I taught my children to say that when they could barely speak, you know, at the age of two, and I'd have them come out at a cocktail party and say, go ahead, say it. No, And they'd say, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. And uh, which is, uh, unfortunately, Dr. Johnson lived in a more sincere era. (laughs) But I think what he didn't mean in talking about his pleasures, he meant in pursuing his pleasures. I happen to like a lot of Renaissance art and even art in the late 19th and early 20th century. So I'm saying that a revolution began uh, in the early modern era. It culminated in the Enlightenment's attack on all things Christian and European, and that was the subject of this uh, past summer school at the foundation. And then it called 
And then it, it found expression in the French and the Russian revolutions in their destruction of everything in normal human society. And most recently here in America, leading the way and in Western Europe, um, there is a revolution against nature itself. Again, I mean, I'm not talking now in, in, in Christian moral terms. I'm talking as a natural, any natural human being since the Paleolithic era uh, as he might have talked, you look out and you start talking about legitimating unions between men or giving people the right to change their sex or giving a peculiar, a civil rights to pets. You've obviously, we, we, the, in America today, we've gone beyond the wildest deranged dreams of Lenin, Stalin and Trotsky. So now along the way, in this, in this very destructive 500 years, there all or 600 years there's also been uh, a great many people uh, of great talent and imagination and vision they've created many uh, many beautiful works writers musical composers painters and there's there's no point in denying the beauty for example of Botticelli uh, there's a pornographic element in Botticelli but uh, as we are learning recently with the revelations against Hollywood it seems men are attracted by pornography um, and so, some of these artists, like the later Botticelli, was in uh, opposition to the revolutionary movement. Others, such as uh, other writers like that, you could name or like Shakespeare, Walter Scott, who clearly uh, stood athwart the revolution. Uh, Johann uh, Sebastian Bach. Um, they would today we would use the misnomer conservative, they, but they they were simply people who sought sought to preserve and create a beauty that transcended mere fashion. But on the other hand, you have Mozart, who was a Freemason, uh, not especially wild about Beethoven, but he fell for just about every stupid uh, part of the Enlightenment revolution that he ran into. But this is, it would be foolish to deny that Mozart is a, a, one of the great creators of beauty, or, that Be or even that Beethoven, uh, uh, at his best in the quartets and later sonatas to, to deny the, the magnificence of these would be childish. The creation of beauty is not something we should try to reduce to our own dimension. It's like the pursuit of truth and the worship of God. The creation of beauty is a fundamental, and the appreciation of beauty, these are fundamental human needs. And the Greeks understood this and I, as no one, I think, since has understood this, the Greeks acted on that understanding. They created uh, great, beautiful temples, beautiful. Uh, their, their mason jar was the attic vase, you know, uh, uh, the painted vase. They, every, every, uh, their, their, their pop music is, the, you know, the, the, the poetry of Alcaeus and Sappho and Simonides. There is something about the Greeks which, we can never really hope to uh, reproduce. We can only hope to carry forward that spirit in our own culture. We moderns, that is, we French and German and English, we're descended from essentially from savage barbarians who, you know, they 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 lived in filth. They had uh, they created no beauty. It was only when they were converted to Christianity and to Roman civilization that they became worth anything, and that they learned to dedicate themselves. It took hundreds and hundreds of years 
for the Germans to produce a, a Bach, a Haydn, and a Mozart. And of course, once the Germans got got civilization down, they became you know quite creative and wonderful, as did the French and and uh, the North Italians and 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 other groups. But as soon as we started cutting ourselves off from the two sources of this inspiration, the sources of beauty and nobility, namely the classical tradition and the Christian church, then we uh, we began to lapse back. The lunatic uh, Nietzsche uh, once said, and I don't, I say this with, with no disrespect to my Lutheran friends, uh, Nietzsche was extremely anti-Catholic and his father was a Lutheran pastor. But he once said that, you know, when Luther came along, the Germans were able to uh, rebel against Rome and crawl back, you know, into their into this into the sty, the pigsty that was natural to them. <laughs> and uh, in a way, this is really true of uh, modern man that is cut loose from our contact, both through the Church of Rome and through the Latin language and and uh, and classical tradition. We uh, we have we have slinked back into the into the the marsh with Grendel, where we we live under the water with the, and uh, in depressing circumstances. What if what if those who would consider progress to be just relating to um, let's let's say better medicines or better engineering, uh, we can we can build things or or things are more widespread than they were. Uh, Indoor plumbing was invented a long time ago, but it's more more people have access to it now. What do you think of, of that definition of progress? Well, you know, progress is a slippy, slippery word. We, we use it uh, in two basic classes of meanings. One is the objective reality that improvements can be made by human beings in agriculture or specific technologies or arts or science. And there's no point in denying this. The, the ancients knew this. And, uh, and uh, we know it, no matter how, how, uh, how traditional, how tradition bound we, we might be, uh, there's still a, a, an acknowledgement that, yes, things do get better. It is interesting that in the case of plumbing and hygiene, sanitation and longevity, uh, London reached a peak in the uh, Roman Empire that it never reached again until uh, the night about 1960. That is the, the, the health of the average Londoner. But because the Romans did have uh, ways of disp- uh, getting fresh water, disposing of waste, and, of, uh, and also of, uh, heating their, their houses, which is more necessary, obviously, in, in Roman Britain than it was in Roman Italy. So it, uh, <laughs> there's, there's more often regress than progress. But we also use the word to mean... To, to imply whether we're conscious of this or not, it's a, progress is a kind of force in nature that makes forward motion inevitable. You can't stop progress, they'll tell you. Uh, this is a very modern notion. I think it's the quintessence of modernity. So, uh, it, it, so in this view, progress is ever moving forward. It's, it's you know, that's what Dylan Thomas's great line, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, drives my green age, that blasts the roots of trees, is my destroyer. It's, it's, it's that sort of thing. It's evolution is good 
because it reverses the principle of entropy on which the universe is really operating, that is, everything is tending to wind down and get less well organized, but with, with the principle of uh, Darwinian evolution on the one hand, and the, the, the moral and social idea of progress, everything's, everything and every, every day and every way, things are getting better and better. <laughs> when, when, you, when you're defining it this way, Dr. Fleming, I'm thinking of, uh, in America, the fact that when Rush Limbaugh made liberal a dirty word, they rebranded themselves as progressives. And yes. they're, they're partaking of this definition that you're speaking of. Exactly. You know, it's. Um, I used to know the uh, the editor of the Progressive magazine, which is a left wing magazine, the progr- in uh, in, in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, the Progressive movement of the Middle West is quite an interesting movement. And the modern day people who call themselves progressives, people like Al Franklin, Franklin is a pr- progressive, or Paul Wellstone in Minnesota who preceded him, um, they're all essentially soft Marxists. Uh, they want to reprogram us, but it, it shouldn't be done uh, with bayonets. But the old progressives were uh, they were anti-war, unlike the new progressives who have never seen a war they don't approve of as long as it, it's liberating mankind from the shackles of religion and ignorance. They were also very suspicious of big business, which is not at all true. No matter what the modern progressive may say, they're very in favor of world government, global government and uh, glo- uh, glo- the global monopoly capitalism that runs the world. And the best of the progressives understood that government was as big a problem as was uh, as as big business, they they were uh, the, the the greatest of the progressives. Uh, Robert M. Follett of Wisconsin uh, was a lifetime Republican, really, and uh, and in many respects an ethical conservative. And, but history has been rewritten so that we look backward and we see La Follette and Bora and all these great Midwestern political leaders of the teens and 20s and early 30s. We see them all as forerunners of the New Deal. They hated Franklin Roosevelt and they, nobody, nobody opposed him as strongly uh, as, as the progressives. So, we, yeah, words were constantly changing the meaning of words. That idea of progress that you're talking about is progress moving away from those big, bad, old, dark ages. That's right. When, when, when men in the early Renaissance, and the first of them to take up the, uh, this argument uh, was probably Petrarch, and I, I would say nothing against his blessed memory. I think he's one of the great writers of the past 500 years. But when they looked back over the intervening thousand years, what they saw was a a millennium of darkness and ignorance between, say, the fall of Rome in 476 and their own their own period. I look back, by the way, on this and I realize, you know, one way of interpreting this notion of the Christian millennium, you know, there'll be a thousand year reign of Christ on Earth. Just what if that's in the past? What if that was, in fact, the Christian age? And since then, we have turned ourselves over more and more to the being we often are told is the ruler of this world. This would be heretical, I know, but I'm, I'm just wondering if we haven't already been there and done that. So they they saw this thousand years as ignorance and filth, and there's some truth in it. Certainly hygiene, sanitation, longevity, Latinity, the ability to build large-scale buildings. I mean, things had, had gone very bad. 
On the other hand, they had thing, they had qualities, moral and spiritual qualities of purity and chastity and uh, courage, which uh, increasingly are in very short supply in our world. So as time went on, and you know these early humanists were replaced more and more by skeptical intellectuals, and Christian faith was on the wane. You could these some of these people, like in the 17th and 18th century, could take the Christian idea that looks forward to history. I mean, we 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 look forward. Uh, you know, Christianity is not a backward-looking religion. It, it, the the you know, we we start from the beginning of time, the creation of man, and then waiting for the coming of Christ, and now for the second coming. And so, Christ, the Christian view of history is of an unfolding drama, determined to to a great extent by uh, by God Himself. And but you take that and you strip out God and tradition, and uh, this 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 set, this, but you, this teleological sense that is everything is headed towards some some uh, far away distant goal, and you you develop the notion of progress that a, a constant evolution away from darkness, barbarism, bigotry, all of the things, the wars of the Middle Ages, toward. We're, we're moving toward the light, and the light is getting brighter every day, the light of reason and rationality, the light of science, the light of, 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 of working together to make a better world for everybody, ultimately toward a golden age, which is not like Eden something, or, or the Greek view of the golden age, something that comes at the beginning of history, but rather the golden age which will be the end of history. And you remember the nonsense. Who was that um, uh, uh, ridiculous uh, American intellectual who was writing about the end of history about 10 or 15 years ago? And he wondered how he could hold a job after having made such a, such a great fool of himself. Francis Fukuyama. Yeah. So the, uh, so that, so the, so the, 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 the modern notion of history is this uh, of progress, this inevitably, you know, this roll it, not like, not like a rolling stream, but, but a, 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 maybe a lava spill that's destroying everything in its way. All history has to be destroyed, historical monuments, historical traditions, because ultimately we're going to live in purity. And this is, you know, this was the hippie myth. Yeah, for a you moment know? I thought you were going to say like a Rolling Stone, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you, you you held yourself back. We were, well, or 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 you know the 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 great Joni Mitchell song. You know, we've we've uh, we've got to get back to the garden. You know, <laughs> the, her song about Woodstock, which I think is one of the best pop music creations of that era, because the she articulates the myth that is, you go to Woodstock. And you're you're going to escape history, and you're going to return to the garden. I think it's a remarkable, imaginative uh, creation for uh, for a, a folk songwriter. As you were describing this golden age, Dr. Fleming, I couldn't help but think of Walt Disney's Tomorrowland as one expression oh, yeah. of this. But I feel that's maybe a bit narrower than where you were going. But it is one one expression of this golden age. 
Well, Tomorrowland, uh, much of science fiction. There, there, are, there are two. Uh, Sam Francis used to say there's two kinds of science fiction and horror books. One uh, in which the the enlightened there are enlightened visitors from outer space or come from the future. They leave it. They live in a world without war. Everything is hunky dory. You know, uh, I come in peace. You know, the day the earth stood still, all of that, and uh, or uh, the sign, the portrayal of the future as a as a world without violence, without competition. It's all just great. And then there's serious science fiction, which which seems to read the our current uh, problems into the what would happen if the world keeps on going in this direction. And so somebody like Philip K. Dick put in his magnificent novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, made into the pretty good film Blade Runner, uh, shows a very dystopian future. So, but the people who believe in progress. You know, the, the, this leftist dream of progress, they believe in the utopian future at the end of history, whereas guys like Philip K. Dick are on our side. Right, yeah, Philip K. Dick in, in, in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and I, I should warn our listeners, don't, don't let Dr. Fleming and I get too far down the science fiction road. <laughs> but but in, that, in that book, he described, he, there's a religion attached inside this story, which uh, Ridley Scott completely strips out. We see nothing of it yeah. in, in Blade Runner. And there's still that element of the transcendent that, that, that Dick is looking at in, in his various works, Man in the High Castle, things like that. So yeah. not yeah. Gonna, not, we'll, we'll save that for another episode. Actually, we should do an episode on, uh, on um, you know, uh, there's a there is a, a a political, ethical, and spiritual dimension to some of the best science fiction. And before I came to Chronicles Magazine, I was working on a major essay that I was uh, I was so I was reading a ton of science fiction, a lot of it very bad, but trying to separate out those science fiction writers who who sort of saw the future and knew that it wouldn't work. Would this essay be in a shoebox somewhere in Rockford, Illinois? <laughs> the ideas are in the back of the head, and I've and, I've, and so uh, we it's, I've got enough to certainly to do a, a thirty minute episode. There's there's uh, that was back when there were these things called typewriters. Is that is that right, Dr. Fleming? Uh, Joe, I had an I had an IBM Selectric. I had I was the envy of all the academics I knew. As as one scientist friend of mine said, "Don't you think that's a bit too much gun for you?" <laughs> uh, but did, I had to be able to type in Greek. Did you Did you know that? Uh, and again, uh, just a, a little digression, listeners. I promise to bring us back to the road. <laughs> that there, it is a new, uh, trendy thing to buy typewriters. People have yeah. been reconditioning typewriters, and it's. The, I didn't realize. And we're talking the old, heavy kind, the kind that you might throw your back out. Uh, yeah. You know, if you carried it the wrong way. And I'm fascinated that it is coming back. We've seen. We've re- we've seen vinyl. Uh, that the the, oh, yes. the millennials yeah. are really into records, and I wonder if they're going to bring you, back. My, my son-in-law believes that you have a warmer feeling from the vinyl. Hmm. Well, I, I it, it, it's it's clear that they're wanting uh, for all of the the things that we could say about millennials, and I'm I'm borderline with with the date cutoff, whatever date cutoff you use. So so I share some traits with them that the. This desire for some kind of authenticity, whether it's the endless photos they take or the artisanal beards or or whatever it is that they're involved in, that there is some desire to get back to 
some reality, and we see this uh, with the vinyl. And and if they bring back typewriters, that would be a great revolution indeed. They're very they're very conservative in the negative sense in which I usually use the word conservative. They want to preserve the world of their parents, you know, or restore it. It's a world they have a uh, a a vision of. I understand this very well. When I was a child, I would close my eyes and imagine there were no electric lines or or automobiles on the street. I hated every sign of technology, and uh, I, I spent a lot of time in the woods as a result. I'm thinking of, and, of George C. Scott saying in, uh, in Patton, how I hate the 20th century. Yeah, well, I, I grew up hating it, you know, and I, I don't know why, but, uh, but the problem is that, um, you know, I have a writer friend, and I, I couldn't get him to work for me for a long time, and I couldn't get him to switch over to a computer because he was hung up on the typewriter because, you know, Hemingway used a typewriter. Well, typewriter is a very clumsy, stupid piece of technology. The pen is much better, much more free, much more free much, and then you pay some girl to type it up, or, or, you, or you know, Wendell Berry would pay his wife to type all his stuff. And then so uh, feminists got very mad when he revealed that in, a, in, an, in an interview. But well, it's, the, better, it's better than what other people have been revealing lately. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, and again, I'm going to take us down another road here of digression. I promise our listeners we will get back on track. But, you know, we're, we're fumbling towards some kind of progress, I guess. Having been someone who's worked in all these uh, different medias, I, I'm, I'm just imagining Dr. Fleming from from an earlier iteration that you might have, and I don't know if you did, I, I don't think we've talked about this, using a dictaphone versus writing something out longhand versus typing versus using a word processor. I've found in my own work as a writer for different clients that, and they're always very shocked to find this out when, when they talk to me, that I do my writing in a journal and then I transcribe yeah. that and I, I say this is simply because I, w I grew up without a computer. I, it, was, it wasn't until college that the Internet arrived. I, I was using word processors at the end of my high school time, so I, I, it's, it wasn't native to me. So that's how I did it, and I still replicate it in my working life. I'm curious your own reflections uh, on the different technologies you used, and if you find... Because I find when I have to write it out longhand, I have to think about the sentence before I before I compose it, and I find I'm more relaxed. And, but maybe that's just because that's the quote-unquote technology I grew up with. And so someone who's been exposed you know, to so many well, as yourself. I, I've done all of this. Uh, I had a secretary who loved to take dictation because she'd been to sectarial school, and I never felt particularly comfortable doing it that way, but I, I did do it. Um, I began writing uh, with a fountain pen, I didn't like ballpoints. So you can already tell, uh, unfortunately, I, I was I was painting myself into a corner. <laughs> and then I could only write with a pen with a good tip of a certain type. And if I had good paper that would take the ink properly. And I realized one day, I remember reading something about uh, Eugene O'Neill when he got arthritis and he had to do dictation and he couldn't write anymore. It was there, and this happens to a lot of writers and artists. They get trapped by a certain form of tech, uh, technology. And so I decided, okay, I'm switching over to a cheap ballpoint and cheap notebook paper and then typewriter, and then I would type it up. I didn't start routinely uh, using a w word processing 
till I was about 40 years old or yeah, and uh, and then into computers I still so just like so just last year then dr. Fleming <laughs> Yes, if 1985 was last year, the <laughs> the uh, you were probably born about the time I started using computers. The uh, but I find that uh, there certainly I can't write verse on a typewriter. I can maybe make cor- and I don't even make corrections, you know. And uh, of course, if you're writing formal verse, that you know, I, I, uh, mo- most of the verse poetry published today looks like it was typed on a word processor on the first draft. But but that's <laughs> a different story. I find that uh, when I write with a pen, I am taking my own thinking seriously. When I let my fingers do the thinking, they used to have this ad: "Let your fingers do the walking." You know, use the yellow pages. When people let their fingers do the thinking, if that's the way they grew up, if they grew up on a computer, it it really explains the 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 the, the millions of pages of bad prose that that get onto the New York Times bestseller list uh, every year. I think that because every, word processing doesn't really encourage the drafting process, does it? No, not at all. There not is, at there's all. no drafts. And once you once you have written a lot with pen and paper and then transferred it to typewriter and typed several drafts, I mean, God, God I, to write a thousand word book review for a newspaper in 1980, this would, would take four or five. Would that have been four or five drafts for you to do exactly, that? Exactly. Exactly. Now I can write something much better the first first draft uh, on a, on a on a computer, but that's because of all the practice. You know, it's like learning a foreign language. I can I can switch in and out. I still prefer uh, when I'm if I'm going to get serious. I keep a journal or a notebook, and uh, and I I write a a lot in that, especially when I travel, and uh, it allows for concentration. But the big problem, the big problem, and this is none of this is unrelated, Stephen, to our topic. One of the big problems is that. People get too attached to technology, including the technology of the past. And so they get sentimental about typewriters or, you know, sentimental about old radio. And my my own view is whatever works or, or, or old farm equipment. Here in the Midwest, people actually collect old tractors and reapers. This is ridiculous. These things are ugly. And, uh, but uh, I, I understand the impulse in a world that's changing at an ever rapid pace. You find something to hold on to, even if it's an old John Deere tractor or a Model A Ford or a Remington typewriter. And, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't condemn this. I do. I, I do think that people should uh, that it would be more wholesome maybe to give up all technology for a while. I think it would be essential in an educational process. Don't let children use a computer. Don't even let them use a typewriter. Don't let them use re- tape recording. Don't let them make them do it. It's like a wilderness experience. Go camping without any electricity and see how you can survive. Well, it's funny. I think that's the way to brace people. Well, I just, as I'm listening to the way that you adapted, I thought, wow, Dr. Fleming's really been progressive uh, with his technology because there's a book uh, called Daily Habits by a gentleman named Mason Curry, and he surveyed artists from all different eras. And 
I'm thinking of people, he talked about the fact Wendell Berry only uses paper and pens, and it's what you talked about, cheap notebook paper, yeah. ballpoint pen. Maya Angelou insists on going to a hotel room at 2 p.m. and writing on paper. Uh, David McCullough has a, a little uh, cottage that he uses a typewriter on, and nobody but grandchildren are allowed back there. So those those strike me as... If someone didn't know Dr. Fleming, one could surmise, well, I'm sure Dr. Fleming has his own process, but it sounds that to our theme of today's show, you've taken technology and the quote-unquote progression of how we transfer things in our mind to to other people. You've you've adapted, and that's why, you know, uh, people who don't know, you, you, you have an iPad, you have an iPhone, you use... You use Macs. Um, one might expect what you're, that, that idea of being caught in a technology, but that's what you were talking about, the sort of dark conservative, the idea of being stuck on something as opposed to the, 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 the larger concept that you're trying to address here, which is using certain tools uh, for, for good rather than being sentimentally attached to the past. Yeah, I um, I I don't want to be a prisoner either of the ballpoint pen or uh, or of the iPad. I want to be. I want to. What, what if technology changes? I want to be in a position where I can use it. I'm perfectly happy writing with a fountain pen or a pencil, and I do certain certain kinds of work are are better that way. But I I refuse. But I think it's 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 transferring value to technology away from the art of writing or painting itself. And I think I think that's a mistake. What I would I, I, someday I'd like to talk to somebody who know, who has been following the steampunk movement because I, um, I I think I get it you know a little bit of what they're doing that is using Victorian technology but projecting it into the future and uh, and so you get all the you know sort of like the um, the movie Brazil is often cited as a, as a you know they got all these tubes and everything but a lot of steampunk stuff the, in the literary side and is um, you know it 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 imagines sort of pre electricity and yet they do magical things with it I guess there was that TV show the Wild Wild West back in the sixties you might be a precursor and there's a there's a there's a guy who calls himself Professor Elemental who does a kind of steampunk videos you in using uh, this weird thing that's developed in England called chap hop. You know, instead of hip hop, you have a nice English gentleman talking about how rotten the world has become, and what we really need is a nice cup of tea. <laughs> I remember I, this, this, stir, this stirred up quite a bit in the comments section on on, yes. the, on, on, on the on the website. Yes, but see, what, what why this interests me is because I, I I get it. I think I understand the appeal in the same way that when I was. 20 years old, I began reading the esthetes and decadence of the 1880s and 90s in France and, uh, and England. I understand the, tar- the or the, uh, the, the, the whole pre-Raphaelite movement. Uh, these, are, these are relatively wholesome rebellions against a world dominated by technology, but they usually are a dead-end street. And it would be interesting to figure out how, how to make it not a dead-end street. Well, I do want to warn our listeners, there is no forthcoming Chap Hop album featuring Dr. Fleming, so don't, don't get your hopes up. To, 
to, to, to bring us back, reframing within Christianity and classical culture, Dr. Phil, I mean, this entire discussion that we've had in the various digressions, does this, this theory of progress that's been brought up, is that a distinction between us and the classical age, between us and the ancients? It, it certainly is. The, the, there's, a, there's a very famous book by J.B. Uh, Bury, uh, who was, of course, a famous hist uh, ancient historian in the early 20th century, a very learned man, not a very brilliant man, but very learned. And he basically traced uh, the history of the idea of, uh, of progress, showing that there are, there are certain elements you could turn to in the ancient world, but essentially they, they were cyclical or regressive. In other words, uh, things were wonderful once upon a time, uh, like in the Garden of Eden, but then, uh, then things have gone to hell, or else it's the, the myth of eternal return. We keep on going round and round and round. And so that the modern age really is distinguished. And by the way, Bury himself was a progressive liberal. He believed the world was getting better. And you can see how uh, Whig liberalism in, infects all of his, his writing, as good as it is. And by the way, this is why it's dangerous to read modern historians writing about the ancient world, because in every period, they read the obsessions of their own life, whether it's 1930s, 1950s, 1990s, or, or uh, 2017. The, the, so now if you write something about the ancient world, it's all about the position of women, the position of minorities, uh, the position of homosexuals, etc. And you could get some very strange views. But, you know, the, there were the Marxists were very dominant in the field of the 60s and 70s of, of, of a, a ancient history. So one, one has to beware. Bury himself, as I said, was a was a post-Christian progressive, a prisoner of 19th century liberalism. Robert Nisbet, a great sociological thinker, who I'm proud to say was a friend of mine, in old age tried to refute Bury, and he tried to argue that the idea of progress uh, existed in ancient thought. Um, I didn't, this was a very much a misguided uh, notion. Bury actually was a very fine historian. He knew Latin and Greek and, you know, eight or nine other languages. Uh, and he uh, he knew the material inside out as only a classical philologist can know it. You can't just read this stuff casually in translation, looking to cherry pick and find the the ancient writers who agree with you. You have to have a broad, deep sense, and, and Bure had that, and that wasn't Nisbet's field. Um, so, really, uh, I think the attempt to to argue that uh, the ancient world had an idea of progress. I, I think it's a, a misguided uh, notion. So if, if we're saying that improvements can and should be made, then progress is not some human destiny. But can you bring us back to what you were talking about earlier about the ugliness of modern life? What, what's the relationship you see there? Yeah, okay. Well, you spotted the, <laughs> the pons asinorum, perhaps, of my art. My, you spotted the weak point in uh, the difficult point. This is not an obvious thing. Many parts, many arts, in fact, do progress. They have humble beginnings from which they rise to greatness. Uh, of course, what we moderns forget is usually after their period of greatness, they decline into decadence. Uh, we can see this in just about any, whether it's sculpture or painting or music. 
Uh, anybody who doesn't think that the music of uh, Richard Strauss is decadent compared to the music of Haydn and Brahms isn't paying attention. Now, Aristotle, you know, had this famous theory of the ent entelechy, the entelechia, which is that there are the natural course, a natural sort of organic growth for an art form like tragedy or comedy or epic. It begins as crude and exuberant and it become, then it fulfills itself becoming more and more true to life and yet getting a higher and higher sense of form like Sophocles' Oedipus compared to say prehistoric tragedy. And then it gets, then it starts losing its way, it starts getting too realistic, it gets, it gets uh, distracted by the exotic, and it, it, it becomes uh, decadent. So if we're condemned to perpetual change uh, in the progressive theory, and that change equals perpetual improvement, what does this suggest? It suggests that, in fact, Richard Strauss is better than Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms, and that maybe what we should be, if we, if we lack any respect for the past, if we lack any notion that tradition is important, that it's that some things, you know, the, the, in the, the, the great works, the great words of uh, Viscount Falkland, uh, whenever it is not necessary to change, it is necessary not to change. If you don't have that insight, then we're always going to be destroying the old and replacing it with the modern, with what we regard as better. And of course, the word modern means uh, ha what's happening now, um, from uh, Latin modo, up to date, modernos. The, the, that's the original meaning of the word modern, that which is in fashion, up to date, with it, and um, you know we are not always in a, in our own generation the best judge of both what is good in our generation and in what way it may be better or worse than previous generations. So in we we tend to destroy what may have been of enduring worth, even if it's a little primitive, even if it's a little old. Uh, and replace it with what is modish or, or even tacky. Why did New York City, to take a real obvious example, have to become so ugly? In the early, in the early 20th century, they were tearing down, late, late 19th, early 20th century, they were tearing down the old New York, 19th century New York, the, the spacious villas, fashionable houses, lovely old churches, and they replaced it with uh, high-rise buildings designed with a certain panache by people like Louis Sullivan. And then, of course, starting, uh, I don't know, in the 60s and 70s, they had to tear down the Louis Sullivan uh, buildings and replace them with these garish glass boxes. Why, why, why did this have to happen? If New Yorkers had any reverence for their own past, for their own history, for their own people, and of course, unfortunately, by 1922, something like three-fourths of New Yorkers had been born out of the country uh, or, there, or were children of immigrants, so, so of course they had no, no connection with the past. But if New, York, if New York had some respect 
as even Chicago had. Maybe they just had enough money in Chicago. But until fairly recently, and even today, there are parts of Chicago that look like an uh, architectural museum of the early 20th century. If you want to see Louis Sullivan, you got to come to Chicago. You can't go to New York. And, New York, and I, I had New York friends who loved going to Chicago because it had early modern urban architecture. Uh, so, so I was going to say, there's parts of, I, I uh, obviously being uh, being a resident of Paris, who tend to look down on New York, but the there are parts of New York that are really quite lovely. I, I, I'm I'm thinking of uh, at the moment. You've cited Chicago. Where where else would you would you cite uh, to to talk about uh, to lend credence to your to the ideas yes. you've been talking about? Well, we can talk. We can talk really obviously about uh, Italian cities, for example. First, uh, Florence. Florence was a very beautiful city. Uh, most of the changes that have disrupted the Florentine cityscape took place well before the 20th century. They took place uh, during the Renaissance, which is not, after all, the worst period of uh, art and architecture. But uh, you, uh, the Florence, medieval Florence, the world of Dante, gave way to the Florence of the Medici, although initially the Medici didn't run around destroying everything. They, they simply built, as things wore out or as they got space, they, they built new buildings. But, uh, but then, although some of the Grand Dukes, you know, they're... Uh, of the Medici, the Grand Duce of Tuscany, they did a good deal of destruction and, and rebuilding. And uh, although it's much easier to walk through medieval neighborhoods in Florence than in, say, Paris, there uh, it is still, they've done a lot of uh, destruction, especially uh, during the unification of Italy, the, gov the, the, uh, the United Italian government creating large commercial piazzas, the old Mercato Vecchio becoming, for example, the, the Piazza della Repubblica. Now, uh, some things, of course, in Florence stayed the same. Other things were actually improved. The baptistry, which uh, Dante knew and loved, Il mio bel San Giovanni, he calls it in uh, in uh, in the uh, Commedia, but they did. But the, in Dante's day, it didn't have the bronze doors of Andrea Pisano, and uh, in Pisano's day, they didn't have the bronze, the, the beautiful what they call the gates of paradise, the bronze doors so much admired by Ghiberti, and the mosaics were added later. So when you have a city where it can grow organically, and you keep on adding sort of things that are consistent with the ethos of the building and the neighborhood, you get something like the baptistry in Florence or the cathedral in Pisa or the cathedral in Siena or Santa Maria Novella in Florence. You get churches that grow by accretion and addition, and each age gets to contribute something without really overwhelming uh, or destroying what had been there. Now, a sadder story is the cathedral, the Duomo, Santa Maria del Fiore, St. Mary of the Flower. Um, and, you know, it's a, it was built at the end of the Middle Ages, I guess, uh, uh, 13, late uh, end of the 14th century. It replaced a paleo-Christian church of Santa Reparata. And uh, the, I guess they needed a bigger church. Uh, Florence was growing. Although you'd think they could have preserved, already it showed some funny signs when they decided just to, just to build over and tear it down. So this magnificent new church is built by Arnolfo di Cambio, 
uh, and uh, and he did a lot of sculpture with it. And of course, Brunelleschi's famous cupola put on top of the architect Talenti's uh, drum that supports it in the early 15th century. This is a, a natural evolution. The facade wasn't really finished, but what what then you get the the, the imperialistic Medici Grand Duchy. And so the Grand Duke Francesco I, who decided that the medieval facade, which was unfinished, needed to be ripped off the church, and, uh, and then they would put a new one. Now, this meant not only the facade, but the dozens and dozens of statues by Arnolfo de Cambio. And later, Florentine governments decided they would uh, clean up the inside. And so all sorts, all sorts of architectural decoration of the interior of the cathedral. So when you go into it, it's pretty depressing. It's pretty disappointing because what you see, it's like, uh, it's like the Münster in Zurich. You know, some very straight, very hot-blooded Calvinists went in and ripped everything out that made it beautiful as if, the, the, the term the beauty of worship God and the beauty of holiness was not an ex, not a part of scripture known to uh, the Calvinists or to the Florentines who did this work. If you want to appreciate what the Duomo in Firenze might have been, you have to go to the museum behind it. And there you can see all these wonderful things that have been from different periods of the history of the church that were ripped out in the hopes of carrying out, including the facade, in the hopes of carrying out a, uh, a new decorative scheme. Ironically, the new facade is quite attractive. It's end of the 19th century, but it's a very Gothic facade imitating, the, for example, the Church of San Miniato al Monte across, across the river. So Florence is a gives you uh, you have the opportunity to see in Florence both the right way to do it, as in as in the baptistry or Santa Maria Novella or even Santa Croce, although they've turned that much too much into a museum, and and the wrong way, which is the destructive progressive way. Now, if you really want a terrifying example, go to Rome. It's bad enough that late Renaissance and in the Baroque. The papacy built all sorts of garish churches to uh, express the power and glory of the Catholic Church triumphant over the world. But then they took all sorts of historic churches, some of them going back to the 4th, 5th, 6th century, like, uh, for example, San, uh, San Giorgio in Belabro. It's a little, 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 uh, little funny church not too far from, uh, from Santa Maria in Cosmedine. And it got it, it and dozens upon dozens of churches, historic, beautiful churches in Rome were baroqued. You know, and we let's make them all uh, in in the baroque idiom, which is a very Jesuit idiom, which is to express the power and might of the church, not testifying to the glory of God, but the power of the church. This is you know, and so as much as the Calvinists, as much as the liberals. The Renaissance and Baroque papacy had this notion of the church triumphant as a force of historical progress. The, I, the One of the greatest of, of uh, popes of the past several hundred years, a controversial man, certainly Pius IX, 
he did a lot. He stripped a lot of the Baroque stuff, including in San Giorgio. And it's true that what you get left is not what would have been there originally, but at least there's a reverence and decency to these churches that Pius IX uh, cleaned up. And, of course, the, the, the most controversial thing that I'm going to say in this program is I don't go to St. Peter's because it is the outstanding example of how the, the uh, Renaissance and Baroque papacy. Remember, these, 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 were, these were essentially thugs and gangsters who were running the church at the time. And their behavior explains the success of the Protestant Reformation. That... <clears throat> Well, I, I may not. I, I, I was going to. It, it, it may well be that the most controversial thing. I suppose uh, I might frame it just uh, if I were to be a bit softer than Dr. Fleming, I might say that anybody who's going to plaster your family name across the front of a church is yeah. is not necessarily doing it for for uh, the reasons um, uh, of spir for spiritual reasons, but. Look, look, St. Peter's was one of three or four of the most important churches in Christendom. They tore it down. They didn't try to preserve it. They didn't try to rebuild it or add to it. They tore it down and replaced it. You know, there's a series of designs, you know, from Michelangelo all the way to Bernini for the, and, uh, and Moderna. We have all these different sketches, designs, and it's gone through different periods. And it's basically harmonious. But it's huge. It's it's like imagine it's like a it's like a, it's like Hitler had architects, you know, at uh, for the for his for like the Nuremberg rallies and uh, these these Arno Brecher and these horrible neoclassical sculptors he got. Well, the 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 effect of St. Peter's in the in the Vatican to me. I once tried to find the right Italian word to express it, and I asked a very pious uh, friend, Alberto Carroza, and he said, I said, how do you say overwhelming? And he said, stravolgente. And I said, si, la chiesa di San Pietro è stravolgente. He said, no, no, stravolgente has negative connotations. You, know, it's a, you feel like you're going to be overwhelmed, and it's too much, and they've gone over the top. I said, exactly, stravolgente. It's a, this church is a monument to power and wealth. There, it is not a monument to the glory of God or to, the, or to the, the piety of faithful believers. And as beautiful and magnificent as it is, it is a cold, comfortless place. It's like a, it's like a giant train station. Now, I know, by the way, any number of, uh, Roman, of Catholic Romans who feel exactly the same way. I didn't. They feel about it sort of the way a lot of Parisians feel about the Tour Eiffel or some of the other <laughs> monstrosities created <laughs> sure. in the 19th and early 20th century. Well, I, we've, we've, and we've done a couple episodes on Rome, and I'm thinking if, if our listeners aren't too sick of us talking about it, we might do one where we just talk about the churches. Because yeah. when, I think St. Peter's accompl accomplishes what it's supposed to do because every time I take someone in who's never been there before, I watch their reaction and I remember what, how I felt the very first time it's there to, to intimidate, blow you away. Yes. Um, 
just that that it's supposed to blow you away. It's absolutely it's spontaneous, right? <laughs> and 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 there's there's a there's a importance and a place for that. You know, you're talking to somebody who wants to bring back the sedia gestatoria and all that, those sorts of things. So, but when I think about my sentimental favorites, I'm thinking of San Clemente. I'm thinking of Santa Maria and Trastevere. Um, San Stefano Rotondo, uh, Santa Sabina, these things that are so old and really different. You're not going to find churches like Santa Sabina elsewhere. And, and that's no. what's really great about Rome. Whereas St. Peter's, I'm not saying you're going to find St. Peter's elsewhere, but St. Peter's is, is it, doesn't, it doesn't quite feel like it's fitted for everyday worship. It's certainly there for papal ceremonies and the pomp for that. But if I'm going to go to mass every day, I'm going to go to some place like Santa Sabina, uh, yeah. rather well, than you have, to, you have to climb that bloody hill to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of climbing hills, I feel we might uh, we might do a part two here, Doctor Fleming, because we are running a bit long. But as you were describing Florence, perhaps we can end with this for this episode. As you were describing Florence, I was visualizing your description from the other side of the river. So I would, as you were talking, I was where you could say the Belvedere or on the city walls or uh, right, Piazza, right. Piazza Michelangelo. And I was right. looking at the city as you were describing it that way. And I was thinking about the role of walls in relation to our theme of progress today. Because if you, if you look in Paris, the, uh, the, the walls of Philippe Auguste are quite obvious because they're the only parts of the Metro that are elevated because the metro was built on the spaces of where the old wall was. And what ended up happening is when Paris built walls, you just have this sort of ugly growth up and over the wall. And so they had to demolish the wall and, and build further. And today we still have a, a sort of wall in this ring road that surrounds Paris. And, and what's inside the ring road is Paris. And, and then beyond that, there be dragons. And, yeah. I, and I wonder the role of the wall in architecture in a city like Florence and its relationship to progress, and does the does the wall symbolize the futility of trying to halt progress, or uh, and what happens to a wall as a city expands? Uh, what is how did the classic how did what was the ancients way of de dealing with it? We can go back to Rome, uh, and and what we have now, where we just have a bunch of sprawl. This is a big subject, and I think we should uh, take it up in part two. Um, I think we should close uh, the discussion with this because one answer, of course, is that you keep on building walls farther and farther out. So from the Servian Wall to the later Republican Wall to the Aurelian Wall in Rome, they just as this, a city is defined by walls, a city without walls, except for Sparta, uh, is not really a city. And one of the functions of the wall is to define the sacred space of the city, which will be attacked by enemies, both human enemies on the one hand and supernatural enemies on the other. The walls of Rome and the Leonine walls around the Vatican are walls not just to keep out the Saracens, but they're also to keep out the diabolical uh, uh, host that is always assaulting both the church and the civilization which the church produced. Thanks for uh, all your thoughts on this first episode of a two-part mini-series, Dr. Fleming, and we look forward to our next episode when we talk more about these issues. I hope to see you again. Thank you for listening.
listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.